0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's. When you need snacks for game time, you need Trader Joe's. You'll score with interesting munchies like gochujang almonds and cornbread crisps and snacks like mango sticky rice spring rolls. All at prices that make you the winner. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram.
2: Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. Uh, we are taping this on Monday morning. There's a lot of big news in college football after a very, very chaotic weekend. Stu, you were right in the middle of it uh, in Columbus for the Penn State-Ohio State thriller.
1: Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. So what's Literally in the right in the middle, by the way. Literally right in the middle of the field storming. Were you storming the field as a son of Ohio? Was that <laughs> You got so caught up in the moment? No, I, I got well. I got caught off guard. It's been a while since I covered a game where they stormed the field, and you don't necessarily expect the fans of The Ohio State University to storm the field against a uh, team on which they were a touchdown favorite, but I will concede it was a very dramatic victory. Uh, Stu, on, on today's episode, we have a,
2: a special guest. That is our old friend, Andy Staples. He's my colleague and your former colleague, and... It's very timely that we have Andy because a lot of the news, biggest news in college football this weekend, came out of his alma mater and his hometown team, the Florida Gators.
1: And let the record show that I uh, reached out to you and said, let's bring on Andy last week when we had no idea that there would be huge news coming out of Gainesville. So I'm glad we did. All right. We are pleased to be joined by a man who is Bruce's current coworker and my former coworker at Sports Illustrated. And that is Andy Staples. Andy's also the co-host of the new podcast, Place at the Table. Andy, how's the podcast going? Hopefully, you're not in, in experiencing all of the um, technical difficulties that we just did.
3: No, it's more scheduling with us, but we get we get it done. We're that's what we we we're, we learning. We're learning that reliability and and frequency is the key here. So we're we're trying to make sure we get it out every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, so you you get your preview, you know. For your Thursday morning commute, you get your review for your Monday morning commute. Hopefully everybody's happy.
2: Andy, for those of us who know you best, as well as all the people who follow you on social media, they know you're the foremost authority in college sports on all things food. So how much is this does that come up in place at the
3: table? Comes up pretty much every episode. Depends on how active our producer Dustin Sweetelson is. On the show, how much it comes up because uh, he had to fill in last night for Patrick, who had a, a, something going on, and he we we spent a solid ten minutes arguing about gas station cuisine and which which gas station chains make better food, whether it's Sheets or Wawa in Pennsylvania, uh, Bucky's in Texas, Busy Bee in Florida. There's there's all kinds of of great. Gas station food, and you know we talked about the Lakers Celtics argument. The the original, the OG is is Sheets versus Wawa in Pennsylvania. A lot of people love Wawa;
1: they're all wrong. The correct answer is Sheets. I have to say, you know, I was I don't know if it's just because I'm from Ohio and I live in California now. I was completely naive to the gas station food craze. I was also completely naive and caught off guard by the extent of the soap opera that was going on right in your backyard in Gainesville, <laughs> Florida, Andy. Jim McElwain out as Florida's coach, I don't think a week ago this time any of us could have predicted that. No. It, it escalated in a hurry. When did you have the first inkling that this would would happen as quickly as it did?
3: Well, once I figured out exactly what Florida's statement on Monday afternoon last week was about, because I was in Orlando working on another project, didn't have my phone on, didn't know what was going on in the outside world, and I'm driving back from Orlando and stop and get some coffee, and open Twitter, and I see this statement. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting, but I don't really know what it's about, so let's read what happened. So I read what McElwain said about the death threats. I went back and watched the video, and the statement says, we're concerned about the safety of our coaches and family members and players. That's the first sentence. The second sentence is something to the tune of, the administration asked Coach McElwain to elaborate, And he declined to give additional details. And as soon as I saw that, I realized, oh, boy, this is this is a big problem. And this is coming to a head and and something something's going to happen now. And I actually tweeted it out. I tweeted out the statement and said, read that last sentence. That last sentence is a doozy. And a bunch of people are like, what do you mean? I was like, guys, this may be the beginning of the end. And as it turned out, it was. And, And it's weird because it didn't register with me. Even though I knew how significant that was. Basically, uh, an administration calling out its sitting head football coach that publicly. It didn't dawn on me until later in the week that, okay, he's probably going to get fired. And then on Saturday, you know, on Saturday (laughs) as I'm driving to Jacksonville for the Florida-Georgia game, like, yeah, he's probably getting fired. This is probably his last game, which is nuts to think about because he won the SEC East. The past two years. Andy, early in the year,
2: so right on the eve of the season, mm-hmm. there's, it comes out that there's this scandal. They're going to have to suspend, you know, almost, you know, nine or ten players, including their 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 best offensive players. And you could tell, I mean, you know, like you, I had reported some on it. And, you know, you talk to people behind the scenes and there was a lot of friction that seemed apparent between Jim McElwain and his bosses. Now for me that was the first time it was like an eye opener to hey, you know, yeah, I know he won two SEC East titles in his first two years, but something's about it seems like it could go off the rails. From from reading your story on SI.com earlier today, the the seeds of this seem like they go way before that. So so why don't you fill people yeah. who haven't read your column yet?
3: So for a little background, Jim McElwain gets to Florida. He had been offensive coordinator at Alabama and and I think kind of assumed that all top-tier SEC programs were basically the same, that everybody has fantastic facilities, everybody is as modern as modern gets. Well, Florida, for from a facility standpoint, is way behind the rest of the SEC and has been for years, uh, made up for by the sunshine and palm trees and, and population. But they've been very cautious with their money. They've not, you know, like Tennessee has sort of torn down and rebuilt its facility three times since the turn of the century and Florida has not done that sort of thing. They they don't have a dedicated football building. Uh, When McIlwain got there, they were just building an indoor facility. So there, there was a little bit of, wait a second, this isn't exactly what I signed up for. Does this mean these guys aren't going to give me everything that, that Alabama gives Nick Saban? Well, that was a, you know, so there was a little bit of friction there, but they, you know, they did, give them an indoor facility. They, they did create a master plan where they're going to build a dedicated football building. All that stuff is, is in the works, but he kept kind of gigging them for that. So after they won the Outback bowl in January, he gets asked this real softball question by, by Mike Bianchi from the Orlando Sentinel about, this is a big win. They won 30 to three, obviously, you know, very positive for your program. Does it feel good going into the off season with this kind of positivity? And McElwain lists a few good things that are going on. And then he, he says something to the tune of, we'll see about the commitment from the administration going forward. Which, if, it's a, if this is an 80s sitcom, that's where the record scratches and, you, and the, the camera cuts to the AD like, what? And so Scott Strickland at that point, the, the Florida AD, had been on the job for two months. In that two months... He had already worked out an extension with Jim McElwain. They they wouldn't announce this thing publicly for a few more months after after the Outback Bowl, but he'd already agreed to give the man more money. And so the the, the administration in Florida, the Strickland and the people who work directly under him, are sitting there going, "Wait a second, this guy's gotten more yeses than Urban Meyer ever got, and we're giving him more money, and he's still saying this stuff about us." That did not sit well, and that that, that was one of the bigger cracks right there and then it just kind of there there were still more of those as as they went along
1: one of the crazy stats to me is you know it's hard to remember this now but florida was three and zero in the sec to start this season everybody knew it was smoke and mirrors but at that point jim McElwain was 16 and three in the sec yes. during his coaching tenure i can't imagine many coaches have been have started 16 and three in the sec and been fired three games later
3: no, I, I, I don't think outside of maybe Bobby Petrino in the motorcycle. He was having a pretty good run at the time, but you know there there was, like I said, there was off field stuff too. It wasn't just wins and losses, but it was mostly wins and losses. I, and I think that the the four losses in this tenure that mean the most. And if you you know you ask a Florida fan why why were you because I will say this: the fan base sniffed this out in year one in terms of their competitiveness. And I was, I was saying, you know, what you guys are crazy. Why are you, why are you killing this guy? He's doing fine. He's going to, you know, upgrade the roster. They could see that it wasn't a competitive, you know, it, they just weren't competitive in, against the teams they needed to be competitive against. So the four losses that matter the most would be two to Florida State, two to Alabama at the end of each of the first two seasons. They, they never scored an offensive touchdown against Florida state under Jim McElwain. That is a huge problem from a recruiting standpoint. Huge.
1: I bet they would have this year.
3: They probably might have, (laughs) but the thing is they still might've lost that game as bad as Florida state is. So, you know, that's, that's the big issue is can you compete with the, with Florida state's good. Can you compete with Alabama? Because, you can't win the SEC title unless you can beat Alabama. And, you know, you can say they, they made the SEC title game. That is true. But were they ever really competitive for the SEC title in those two years? Nobody gave them a chance against Alabama. They never appeared to have a chance in either of those two games. So that's, that's where the fan base was, was coming from. It was, we know what a national championship contender looks like because we've seen them here quite a bit recently. And they didn't see that out of Jim McElwain's teams. And the fact that it never got any better offensively and the defense was, was going down because it was impossible to stay as up as that defense was. I mean, uh, Will Muschamp put some great players on that defense. And it, what, it, it was going to be really hard to be as good as they were defensively in 2014, 2015, 2016. So when that started inevitably declining and the offense wasn't getting any better, you know, I think the administration looked at and and saw a trend line that did not look very good. That that next year would have been just like this year. And then when you get the death threats thing coming in, because I, I think without the death threats thing, he's still fine the rest of this year and probably, probably is, is coaching at Florida next year. But I don't know that it would have been a great 2018. Wait, 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 wait,
1: wait! I'm going to stop you there. I I assume that there were no, if there were the death threats thing didn't happen, He'd make it to the end of the year, but if they were this down on him and if they finished 6-5 and five or 5-6, five and six, then he'd be fired. You think, I think they this wanted cost him next year?
3: I think they wanted an excuse. Yeah. I think, I think just strictly on field, it would have been hard to, to sell it to themselves. I think you, you could have sold it to the fan base three weeks ago. You could have sold it to the fan base before they ever lost a conference game this year. They were done. They were absolutely done with him. And, but, but you couldn't, I don't think you could have sold it to Scott Strickland and the administration without that excuse.
2: Andy. So now as we tape this, it's Monday morning and Scott Strickland, the AD uh, last night on Sunday, it said the coaching search will officially start Monday morning. So I did a story uh, last night for SI.com about what I think are the 10 most intriguing options on their board. The most obvious choice is Strickland's former coach. When he was at Mississippi State, who is still the guy at Mississippi State, who, by the way, had worked at, under Urban Meyer at Florida, and that's Dan Mullen. He's done a very good job there. He has tried to leave there a couple of times. I know he interviewed on uh, two different occasions for Miami and, and couldn't get that job. If you were handicapping it, and I'll throw this out to both of you, give me the percent chance that Dan Mullen is the Florida Gators head coach in
3: 2018.
2: 33%. Stu?
1: Um, I'll, I'll go up from there a little bit and say 40%. The only thing I'm not clear on is, I mean, I think he'd be a home run hire. He'd do very well there. Scott Strickland, he, they worked together, but did, did they work together well? Is he, is the relationship there good enough for him to want to work with him again?
3: Yes, it it is. It's good enough. They, you know, they have the same kind of issues that every, every AD and head coach have when they're, when they work together closely for a while. But I, I don't think there's anything that would keep Scott Strickland from hiring Dan Mullen.
2: Andy, so I want to ask you this. From what I had heard uh, when Dan Mullen was in Gainesville, Jeremy Foley, who was the longtime AD there, wasn't a huge fan of his. Jeremy Foley, I'm told, will have some influence. I don't know how much influence, but on this hiring process, what have you heard from your sources about, about Jeremy Foley's impact he, here?
3: He had a little more influence than I would have expected on the firing of McIlwain, which is interesting because he's the one who hired him. But he, he definitely was in the camp of got to get rid of this guy. And I was surprised to hear he had any influence at all because I, I thought when Scott Strickland got there, he was kind of g- going to be his own man and, and not worry too much, even though Jeremy was going to be around. Cause Jeremy is still, you know, working with the athletic department, helping raise money. He's still in town. So the thing about it is, I, I think, you know, you, you do want to get the input of the guy who, who worked with the guy before. And I think there would be people who were at Florida when Dan Mullen was at Florida, who would need to be convinced and talked into it, but I think they'd be they could be because the guy knows what he's doing. He's really good at evaluating talent, he's really good at developing quarterbacks. I think if you put him at a school where he could get four and five stars regularly, I think he could be very good. He's had Mississippi State outpunching its weight since he got there. So and I do I think this is the year he moves. And there's probably four huge jobs potentially open this year. I think it'd be Florida, Tennessee. Nebraska and Texas A&M. I think he'd be a good fit at any of those places. I, I think I really do think because of the way he evaluates, because of the way he coaches quarterbacks, because of the way he develops players, you put him at those places where he can get more talent more easily than he can now. It's it's a lot harder work getting those guys to Mississippi State or unearthing those hidden gems. You know, he will still unearth some hidden gems at another school, but he'll be able to just go get the four or five star that he wants that is kind of out of reach at this point.
2: Okay, Andy, I'm going to give you four other names. You tell me who intrigues you the most and mm-hmm. who would intru- who would you like, ah, I don't see this. Okay? Uh, Scott Frost tearing it up at UCF, only a second year as a head coach. There's going to be some questions about whether he's ready, whether he would jump, but he's in there. Charlie's- I think
3: I think you'd take it. Okay, go no, ahead. I
2: think go ahead. Charlie Strong at USF, another former Gator assistant. Obviously didn't – it fizzled out at Texas. Two other names. Willie Taggart. Mm-hmm. Lots of connections in South Florida. And obviously one at South Florida left Charlie Strong some good players can really recruit. And then the fourth name is Scott Frost's old mentor, Chip Kelly.
3: All right. So Frost I think would take the job. but. I don't know that they're necessarily going to want to go the group of five coach route. I think that they might want to have somebody who's already been a power five head coach. Cause one of the issues with McElwain was him not really understanding what kind of pressure he'd be under at Florida and then kind of bucking back against that pressure. You've got to be able to, to accept that. And so the other guys that we've talked about, they would understand that they've been in that seat before
2: charlie would understand that i don't know the thing i would be concerned well
3: about i think it. i think charlie i know charlie wants this job this is charlie's dream job but the thing is i don't know that they can sell it You went so
1: badly texas. at texas i just yeah, don't know how you could do that I, I don't
3: think they could sell it i would watch for charlie to possibly end up somewhere else in the sec watch old miss and charlie strong
2: what, okay, so now we got Willie Taggart, and we have Chip Kelly. But one guy okay. at Oregon, one guy who was at Oregon.
3: Yep, okay, so Chip Kelly, I think they would be very intrigued by. Florida, though, has always fancied itself a goody two-shoes in the compliance realm. And Chip Kelly had, had a show cause for the, the Will Lyle stuff at Oregon. Now, I think Florida is a little bit off of that you know, high horse now. And I know that Chip Kelly has, has created a... You know kind of a plan to tell explain to potential employers and in the in the case of any SEC job, he'd have to explain it to to Greg Sankey or at least explain it so that the the officials at the school could comp- explain it to Greg Sankey so that Greg Sankey could give his blessing for the job it is my by the way, it is my understanding
2: that they don't think that would be a huge issue. I don't, that I don't Chip think Kelly it would be should be a you know, I think no, in discussions I, I, that's already preliminary been kind of walked yes, down the road
3: I, I I've heard the same thing and I I don't think that would be a problem. I think it would be more Florida deciding, okay, we want to do this. And that's the part I I don't have a read on them about. I don't know how they feel about that. But the other guy who is now currently at Oregon, Willie Taggart, I think is really intriguing, and I'll tell you why. One of the things that it feels like it's being ignored in all this and was being ignored when they hired Jim McElwain is how well – do these candidates recruit the state of Florida because it is a very unique ecosystem that happens to produce the best football players in America and if you do it right you will have a roster that can compete for a national title every year but if you do it wrong you will get crushed by a Florida state or an Alabama every year and, so, if,
2: and if you took Willie Tiger with his connections and his work ethic yes. and
3: put that staff that
2: he has there now. Right.
3: Jim Levitt gets to come too, former U.S. Staff, yeah. head coach.
2: Mario Cristobal would come too. <laughs> you know. Exact.
3: Former FIU head coach, former Miami Hurricane. Yes.
1: But think He's about what we're talking about here. We're talking about the guy. So Oregon, it's not unusual for somebody to leave a program after one year. It, does, it, it happens. We're talking about Oregon. A program that's only a few years removed from playing for the national championship. Would Taggart do that? My hunch is he would. You got a couple of things to keep For in this mind.
3: Job. If it were this job or Florida State, I think he would. Any other job, I don't think he would.
2: Yeah, and also you got to keep in mind. You know, the Taggart just lost his his dad in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. I think the issues of. You know, I, I know we did one of his games early in the year. His family likes it out there, but at the same time, this would be a chance to come home. You know, be close to his mom and everything else. I think that would be a. If they came to Willie Taggart and said, "Hey, this is an opportunity here," I think he would have a very, very hard time saying no to this.
3: I, I do too, and I, I think he might be. If you're just asking me to rank the choices, because of the recruiting ties and the staff he could bring. I think
1: he might be my first choice. Wow. I think, uh, uh, I think it's close between. Uh, but, so basically you've got three guys, Mullen, uh, Scott Frost and Taggart, who I think any of them, I'd be very happy with if I'm a Florida fan. Uh, yeah. I think Wait, the you'd be happy
3: with Chip Kelly. You
1: wouldn't be happy with Chip Kelly still. I'd be thrilled with Chip Kelly. I don't think Chip Kelly is be thrilled to be there. I mean, it's fun to talk about, but if, if as we understand it... So, so,
2: so, Stu, what, what job do you think Chip Kelly is going to take this offseason?
1: I think he's going to take a less glamorous job where he can do his Chip Kelly thing and not have to deal with the media much and not have to go give booster speeches, et cetera. Et cetera. And certainly Florida is not that job.
3: No, you can, you can do that. Uh, like, Tennessee and Texas A&M are not that job.
1: But Florida, you can kind of get away with that. Well, look, Todd Graham's not totally safe yet at ASU. He had a nice 2 year I know, there. I know. I
2: you thought know. you just jumped on the bandwagon the other day, Stu. You're back off again? Oh, it did not go well <laughs> against SC, did it? As soon as Stu got on the bandwagon, they were back to being I, in. I no, think I, Scott
1: Frost is going to be a rock star head coach at a Power 5 school. I don't think he anticipated that this would come up. Something like this could come up after just the second season at US, uh, UCF. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I also, but, but one thing people should understand, he's been talked about so much for Nebraska for obvious reasons, but you remember way back in 2004, everybody thought Urban Meyer would go to his dream job, Notre Dame, and he took Florida instead. Because it's easier to win a national it's title It's the exact there, that's same thing. what
3: Scott Frost is going to Scott do. Scott Frost
1: knows he can win a national championship in Florida yeah. and he can, probably can't win one in Nebraska. Yeah, if so. he has the opportunity, that's what he's going to do.
3: And you know, the thing about Scott Frost, I, I don't know that he's going to be in a position where he can turn down every job this year just because some, the quality of the, of the, the jobs yeah. that could be thrown at him, it's just too hard. But he, he conceivably could stay at UCF another year. They're going to get most of that roster back. They'll have another big year next year. So if he wanted to wait and, and, and maybe have his pick. But honestly, if, if you're getting – and I don't know if, if Florida or Tennessee or A&M, I don't know exactly who would have him at the top of the list. Other, obviously, Nebraska will. But if it's Nebraska, Florida, and Tennessee all offer you their job, I don't think you're going to stay at UCF. You're going to
1: take one of those. Well, Andy, we thank you for coming on and addressing this breaking, developing story out of Gainesville. You are. And everybody go, uh, download the new podcast. We will, we appreciate it. And, uh, we will talk to you soon. All right. See you guys. Always glad to talk to Andy and, uh, gosh, Bruce, I, you're, you're hard on, uh, or you're high on Willie Taggart. I was not expecting that.
2: Well, I mean, I was around his program earlier this year and look, I, I mean, this is not a first time head coach. I mean, he won at Western Kentucky. Then he got it rolling at USF. And he, by the way, left the cupboard pretty stocked for Charlie Strong. And look how well he's recruiting at Oregon now. So, and this is a guy with, with, like I said, a lot of connections around South Florida. I mean, he's like the third Harbaugh brother in terms of you know, his connection to, to those guys. But I just think he is people doubt Willie Taggart a lot and he proves them wrong. And
1: I think they're doing better than I expected this year, given what they inherited. And then of course, Justin Herbert goes down, you know, they, I got- mean, they just,
2: they just, they just beat a very physical Utah team. And I don't think people would have expected that, you know, thump them the way
1: they did. And they did it without, like you said, Justin Herbert's still out. They thumped them so badly that, uh, Utah's quarterback ended up dropping an F-bomb And they had to abruptly end the press conference You don't see that every day You do not
2: Alright all right, Stu, so Your game, you were in Columbus I got to see the first half and then I had to go down to the field In Iowa where we had the Floyd of Rosedale rivalry game uh, So I didn't get to see the thrilling finish uh, Anything that I need to know that I may not have read about Or seen in the highlights
1: Ohio State won, they came back and won Did you know that? That I knew, still, that I knew. Thank you. <laughs> well, it was a, it was a weird game in that Penn State led by double digits nearly the entire game. Uh, you know, seemingly were, had it in control. Did Ohio State? Every time you thought Ohio State might get things going, there would be a turnover or there would be yet another false start penalty. I didn't think with five and a half minutes left, down eleven, that I was about to watch Ohio State come back. I really didn't, but. Credit to credit to two things. First of all, obviously JT Barrett was the story of that game. Uh, he was on fire, and he completed his last 16 passes of the game, including I mean, his fourth quarter stat line alone most quarterbacks would kill to have in a game when he was 13 for 13 for 170 yards and three touchdowns. But just as important, if not more so, you knew Ohio State would have a good defense this year. But, man, they – they, um, you know, it's strange to say that, that Penn State, in a game where Penn State ended up with 38 points, that you would say Ohio State had this phenomenal defensive game, but they really did. And most notably, Saquon Barkley, 21 carries. One of them was a 36-yard touchdown. The other 20 carries, he got eight yards combined. Nine, tackle, t- nine runs where they tackled him in the backfield. So, you know, it was a really impressive defensive performance. And I would say that the fourth quarter of that game was the Ohio State team that I picked to win the national championship. But I'm not necessarily ready to say, all right, that's who they're going to be the rest of the year. You know, they really they really just were their own worst enemy for the first three quarters of that game.
2: Let me ask you this. So I saw in the wake of it, you had your top ten. As we tape this tomorrow, (laughs) the uh, first official playoff rankings will come out. I think they're going to be one and two are probably pretty pretty obvious that they're going to be two sec schools alabama and georgia but then after that i think it's going to get very interesting especially three through eight why don't you tell why don't you tell the our listeners what you had three through eight and then we can kind
1: of go back at it a little bit okay so i had uh seven and one clemson number three and that's because as we get knowing that the playoff rankings were gonna start coming out i started trying to use the criteria that we've heard them use in the past, and they, especially in these early ones, you always hear them say they've beaten X number of teams with a 500 or better record. And Clemson has six of them, which is pretty good. Yeah, but uh,
2: sometimes, too, I feel like they grasp onto stuff, and it's like, okay, maybe these people value this. It's a lot of mixing and matching,
1: though. It is, and you're never going to be. And, and I know one of the things we're going to talk about here is a second is a head-to-head scenario. But I don't I, think you can ever be perfectly consistent with that. Do you think –
2: let, let me ask you this because you're you're now trying to – tell. it sounds like you're taking your rankings and kind of bastardizing it into something what you think the committee is. Or is that how you really think
1: Clemson uh, should no, be number three? No, I, I, I mean I've said from the beginning that I will try to reward strength of schedule, resume. But I, I think – and I wrote it Monday morning on the All-American that Notre Dame will be number three in the uh, playoff rankings. No, who rankings. do you think should be number three? Who do I think should be number three? So I wrote these Sunday night. I think if I had a mulligan, I'd probably move Notre Dame ahead of Clemson. I so do you, think they deserve to be number three. They've beaten three. And by the way, I didn't necessarily think Michigan State was going to stay in the top 25. So maybe that threw me. But three top 25 teams in Michigan State, SC, and, and two NC of And
2: two of them, they hammered. They Actually, yeah. all three of them. I mean, Michigan State, the final score was lops. All three scores were lopsided. I had Notre Dame clearly number three. I have Clemson number
1: eight. So, if you have Clemson number eight, that tells me that you're basically just saying, "Well, I don't care what else they did; they lost to Syracuse."
2: No, no, no. That's not what it tells you. Here's what. Here's what I'm going to go through. So, so Notre Dame we talked about. Oh, I have Oklahoma number four. We'll get to the Oklahoma Ohio State thing in a minute. So let's put that for pause. I have TCU number six. I have TCU number six because they went to Oklahoma State and they won. They also, you know, beat. West Virginia, which isn't a, which is which is a decent team. It's a decent win, but the win over Oklahoma State to me matters. I have Penn State number seven. You know they only lost by one at Ohio State. They crushed Michigan. I get it. The rest of the resume isn't that great. Uh, so that's where they. Am. But when I look at Clemson, yeah, I know they have a bunch of wins over teams that are that are over five hundred, but they're like, you look at the ACC, almost everybody in the ACC in their division, except for one team is over five hundred. And start to pick their resume part, they have a good win at Virginia Tech. I like that, but after that, you know that win at Louisville, that doesn't look very good now.
1: No, but they did beat Auburn. yeah
2: you know, Auburn also just lost at home to lost the other day to, to uh, LSU Auburn's got two losses. I mean I, that's a good win. I don't think it's like a you know an awesome showing or whatever. Well, the I mean the flip I would, side
1: of this would I be... would argue,
2: I would argue that what TCU did at Oklahoma State, is more impressive than any win Clemson has. And also, you know what? You can say, oh, well, TCU lost to Iowa State. Iowa State's pretty good. They have two top five wins. And I think Iowa State right now is a better team or is more
1: deserving than Syracuse is. At this point, I'm not holding anybody's losses to Iowa State against them. With this Matt Campbell, who told me, by the way, on Sunday that he's a little behind on the Audible, so he may not hear this till like February, but I'm, I'm a believer in the Cyclones. Well, let me ask you this. So, uh, I had, like I said, I had Clemson three, Notre Dame four, Ohio State five. Where do you have Ohio State? I have Ohio State five. All right, we both have them five. But the point I was trying to make was, you know, if we're going to be down on Clemson, and like I said, Clemson's beaten six teams with a record above five hundred. You know, Ohio State has a much better signature win than Clemson does against Penn State. But I don't know if they have another win after that that anybody would say was a good win. So you have to kind of balance. How much do you reward a team for one game as opposed to what they've done over what is now? I 18.
2: mean, I think some of these Clemson wins, and they're, they're teams that are kind of, like, eh, they're four and three teams. You know, you start looking at some of the ones they've beaten. I mean, they're not top 25 teams. They're not even teams near the top 25. I mean, Virginia Tech, at Virginia Tech, that is definitely a good win. But I think what what's happened to Louisville is not helping their cause, you know, when you start looking at it. They Again, beat that's they beat,
1: uh, mighty Wake Forest five and three Wake Forest just just uh, hammered Louisville. No, I, I hear what you're saying for sure, and I think Clemson's got to got to play at NC State this week. I mean, they could lose that game. They've got I think they will handle the two and five Seminoles, but they got to go play must champs, uh, much improved Gamecocks end of the year. I, I don't think Clemson's out of the woods by any means, but I think you know I, th- I think they've had a really good season to this point, and you know by the way, you know you're going to get great defense with clemson which is going to bring me to i know what you're gonna so you said you have oklahoma fourth where do you have oklahoma and where do you have ohio state i have ohio state fifth and then i have penn state and then i have wisconsin and then i have oklahoma at wait eight, wait wait wait. So you, have, you
2: have ohio state three spots ahead of a team that went into columbus and beat the shit out of the bucket.
1: oh my gosh put the x would have won on this podcast no i don't understand so well it's a tough a situation game? look i'm not Did the game not happen well, it happened, but it happened in week two. And as you know, and it happened in week two of this season. Not it happened in <laughs> week two of 2014. Well, how do you, so how do you, let me, well, I'm just going to ask you straight up. Do you think I uh, hear on October twenty, October 30th, that Ohio State, that Oklahoma is a better team than Ohio State? I think they beat them. I don't uh, know. Uh, that wasn't the question. Do you think they're a better team than them? I think they're more deserving of the spot. Uh, I think it's know. not most deserving, it's four best. Jeff Long is very adamant about that.
2: You know what? Then I do think they are. You know why? Because Baker Mayfield lit that defense up, and I'm not sure they would stop him. Well, speaking of defense, I don't want to get into the point, Stu, where if you start saying, okay, I think this team wouldn't happen. You know, it happened. It did happen. it, it, It happened. And again, this wasn't even a close game. They whipped them. It wasn't in Norman. It was in Columbus. I think when you start getting it, and it's, it'd be one thing if if Oklahoma had lost another game, but they haven't. It'd be one thing if Baker Mayfield was like injured
1: and had a shoulder problem or something and wasn't playing. He's still there. So here's my thing. So look, I I don't I'm not comfortable with, with having them that way. I think
2: you have I think you have a bad case of recency bias, and, and I, I also think no, I, you were, I, I Physically I'm, there, and mm-hmm. you are, you just watched Ohio State because I think I mean did you like I don't know how you completely disregard them, o- Oklahoma
1: beating them. Okay, Bruce, we're gonna we're gonna play we're gonna play. Did you know this? So here, let's go through. This is uh, the college football total defense rankings by yards per play, which is what you should use. As I look through, let's let's see where some of our top ten teams in our top ten. So Washington's number one right now. Followed by Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, uh, Wisconsin, and Penn State are tied for 8th. Ohio here's State the, is 12th. Hold, hold on. Hold on. TCU is it. 13th. Uh, Miami is 18th. Oklahoma State, 19th. Notre Dame, 21st. How far down do you think I have to go to find Oklahoma? I don't give a shit, Steve. 70 <laughs> seconds. Okay, That's why of, I'm down on Oklahoma. Their okay. defense is bad. It was great that one night against Ohio State, but it's bad in general. And I don't think Steve, they are a better value, team than the ones the above statistics them. Statistics over what actually happened on the field—that's a problem. I value common sense, and common sense tells us that no, Oklahoma- common sense
2: tells you what happened on the field matters more than what something on a spreadsheet matters.
1: Oklahoma has gotten worse since that game. Ohio State has gotten a lot better. I don't believe Oklahoma is a better team than Penn State, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Clemson, any of those teams. Uh, I think. This will probably be moot as of this weekend because I think Oklahoma State is going to drill them because that defense cannot handle Mason Rudolph and James Washington. Yes. If,
2: if but, they do, if they if they win Bedlam in Stillwater, then what? Are you Oklahoma still gonna have Ohio, wins are you Bedlam? Still gonna have, are you still going to have Ohio State who will play at Iowa this weekend? Are you still? Would you still have Oklahoma behind the team they crushed in? Columbus?
1: Uh at that point, no, because at that point they would be. Like I don't consider their resumes to be comparable right now. I, I hate to sound like uh, Kirby Hoka, but last year when everybody was getting all worked up about um, Ohio State and Penn State and Penn State beat them, you know, the they way, just you kept saying like was Ho- they
2: weren't <laughs> particularly close. You don't sound like Kirby Hoka. You actually sound like Albert Breer right
1: now or some other diehard Buckeye fan. <laughs> if I were a diehard Buckeye fan, I'd have them up where the AP – doesn't the AP poll have them third? Yeah, they're third in both the AP and coaches polls. I, I'm you're not going to see me put them ahead of Notre Dame, who's beaten yeah, all those top twenty five teams. We talked about who bashed the coaches poll yesterday. The coaches poll is insane. Can we talk about that for a second? Feel I, it's, free. It is now. Well, first of all, it's the SID poll. Let's be clear about that. This is the one poll that seems to be stuck in pre twenty fourteen. Where if a team loses, no matter who they lose to, no matter the circumstances, they plummet. So Penn State loses by one point at. Ohio State, they fall to seventh. Miami, who God bless your alma
2: mater, has not. Penn State, is, Penn State is at seventh in both the coaches and the AP though.
1: Or the one that I, I have the most trouble with is Notre Dame. I mean, I don't know how you could watch Notre Dame over the last few weeks, or frankly, all season, and say that they're behind Miami. Okay, Miami just went to one in seven UNC in the game, just like all their other games went down to the wire. So the coaches poll is still playing the zero losses is better than one loss game. I guarantee you, I, I can't say that I'm a prophet and I can predict the exact order of the committee rankings on Tuesday. I guarantee you Notre Dame will be well ahead of Miami and not two spots behind Miami like they are in the coaches' poll.
2: Yeah, I, I know. Look, I agree with you. I, I, Miami's resume is not great. By the same token, the team at number four, their resume isn't very good either.
1: They're undefeated. They shouldn't be number Wisconsin. They shouldn't be number. Why is, how on earth can Wisconsin be ahead of Clemson I just rattled off all those great, you know, not great, but good wins Clemson has. Who, what's, who's the best team off the top of your head? You know who the best team Wisconsin has beaten this year is?
2: If I had to guess, I would say it's probably Maryland.
1: No, you know what? Maryland didn't even have a winning record? It's Northwestern. Yeah. It's the mighty Northwestern Wildcats who just took down Michigan State in triple overtime and are now, what are they, 5 3? You know, that, the, that, is the, their, that is who, their big win. Their second the biggest only win other is team? at Nebraska. No,
2: you know what? The only other team that they beat that I think has a winning record right now is Lane Kiffin's FAU Owls.
1: That might be their best one of the season. FAU is just crushing it on offense. No, that's not.
2: I mean, that's not the
1: case. Anyway, I think we both agree Wisconsin. Maybe they are really good. We just don't know. But certainly, I would not be comfortable having them fourth in the country. Where do you have them? I have them ninth.
2: And I've seen them in person. I think they're good. It's just a case of. No, I, I, I still, you know, I still, and I feel like I get to do this more than maybe you do and certainly more than some other people, is I feel like I look at it and go, okay, what's happened on the field? I have to trust that more than anything
1: else. And who's
2: more, who's the most deserving?
1: I have Wisconsin 7th. If I had a do-over, I'd move Oklahoma ahead yes. of them. By the way, I'm glad the committee waits till Tuesday because, you know, I do these Saturday night. My head is spinning on Saturday night. So just to give you a little window into that, cover the game. By the way, a 3.30 game, and you've had many of them for your sideline games, is better for not having to stay up into the middle of the night, but you just don't see anything else. You know, you you get you see bits and pieces of the early games, you don't see anything else in the 3.30 Eastern window, and then when the night games start, you're writing. You're reporting and writing. So After all that, after I go to Champs, the sports bar, with Teddy Greenstein and Dave Revson to have a dinner at 10.30 at night, and catch a little bit of the Pac-12 after dark, then I have to sit down and do this top 10. And, uh, you know, if I had another day to think about it, I think I would have had Notre Dame 3, and I would have had Oklahoma 7th and Wisconsin 8th. Not that that's really that big a deal.
2: Okay. Well, in the same spirit of you being in Columbus, we talked a lot about JT Barrett. How far did he go up, if at all, on your Heisman board?
1: Well, he wasn't anywhere near it before, so he definitely... Crashes the party, and uh, it's pretty remarkable how he has gone from... I mean, the story, I, I believe, was the main thing we talked about on the Audible that Monday after the Oklahoma game. What is Irvin Meyer going to do? Because clearly, JT Barrett's a lost cause, and the passing game's not working still. But can he really bench him for, for Dwayne Haskins? And he all he's done since then is just uh, play near flawlessly. The other night... Uh, I mean, 33 of 39, at least three and possibly four of those were drops. So, but, but you know, I would just say cool it a little bit if you're going to take that one game and go, he's now winning the Heisman or he's, you know, I, I moved him. I immediately moved him ahead of Saquon Barkley. I think the Heisman just, all, all that happened over the weekend was it became more wide open. Saquon Barkley's not running away with it. Uh, Bryce Love didn't play against Oregon State, so he didn't get a chance to... Take advantage of of Barkley's kind of mixed day. Josh Adams is getting better, or not getting better. He just keeps putting up more big games. Baker Mayfield is just—I mean, his numbers are off the charts yet again. All of those guys, I think, could win it. And also, and I want to talk about this guy with you uh, after we talk about JT Barrett, Khalil Tate. Of
2: course, there was going to be a pac twelve quarterback make a run at the Heisman, and it was of course it was going to be. Khalil and of course, Tate. it was. We all saw
1: that coming. Not Sam Darnold, not Josh Rosen, not Jake Browning, but of course. Khalil Tate, I don't know, where's JT Barrett for you in the Heisman picture? He is five for me. So right now, you know,
2: I do five, you usually do three. And for most of the year, it's been hard to find more than the top three, where it's been Saquon Barkley, then Bryce Love, and then Baker Mayfield. And then in the last couple of weeks, you know, there had been Jonathan Taylor, and then I bumped in, here comes Josh Adams after he ran over USC. And obviously he ran over a really good defense at NC State this past weekend. He's, he's in there. I know we talked about him with John Walters, and I think, I forgot what I said to you. Do you give, do you, I think the question was, did you give Josh Adams a better chance of winning the Heisman than Stanford of making the playoff? I feel a lot more confident about that, by the way, now. And then the other guys who I think are, you know, I had Adams, I had, I, I put Barrett in there, 25 touchdowns, one pick. You're looking for stats. Those are stats. But uh, Khalil Tate for me is, is the guy who was right there. I mean, because you had talked a lot about as the biggest selling point for for people who don't get a chance to see any Bryce Love because of the time they play or because they're on Pac-12 network. Uh, Bryce Love's 10.3 yards per carry average. Khalil Tate's three yards more than that per carry, 13.4. His passer efficiency rating is way higher than anybody else in a conference that's loaded with supposedly really good quarterbacks. You know, just personally, what's been interesting for me is last year, uh, our crew did Arizona three times, and one of the games I did, he started against his hometown team, USC. The night before, I had talked to his high school coach. He's from Sarah High School. That program, I think, had 10 guys on the USC roster. I mean, that's a powerhouse. You got guys like Marquise Lee and Robert Woods and and uh, Dory Jackson, among others from there. And and his high school coach, Scott Altmer, told me, he was like, if he wanted to be a receiver, I think he could be an NFL receiver. And he was so competitive. And, you know, what was interesting was back then, last year, Rich Rod and the staff said, you know what, he's terrible at practice, but he'd been pretty good at games. And then he played in that game, and the game was just too big for him. But that playmaking skill, how he fits, and also, you know, I think it helps. J.J. Taylor is a great running back in that system. And when Rich Rodriguez has that kind of running threat in the backfield, he's dangerous, and you're seeing that now. They're 6-2. And I think, and I know you brought this up online. I think, even though he missed much of, didn't play for much of the first month, I think he could win the Heisman and overtake some of these guys if he can keep up the ridiculous pace he put up in in October.
1: So, I think we can all agree, if there was an October Heisman, Khalil Tate would have uh, run away with it, just like he's running away from all these defenses. Eighty-two yard run against Washington State the other night. 75-yard run against Colorado, 71-yard run against UCLA, 76-yard run against Cal. He gained, what, 800, 840 yards? That's correct. 840 yards on the ground in October. Kyle Bonagura from ESPN did the research. Only two players since 2004 have run for more yards in a single month than Khalil Tate just did, and that is Andre Williams in 2013 and Melvin Gordon in 2014. Both those guys, by the way, got to New York those seasons. But by the way, it's not just the running. He has been, you know, he doesn't throw as much as uh, Josh Rosen, for example. But uh, his efficiency rating, he doesn't have enough attempts to qualify on the uh, national charts. But if it did, he would be number three in the country in pass efficiency. So, yes, I I think he can get to New York if he keeps this up. Now, one thing that's working against him, all of those games in October were on the Pac-12 network, so nobody saw them. This game this week against USC is at least on ESPN, though it's at 1045 Eastern. But you know what? It's daylight savings this week. You get an hour back. So everybody in the East Coast, stay up. Watch that game. You've got to see this guy. It's unbelievable.
2: Hey, I, I want to ask you this. So I feel like there's a good chance the winner of the Heisman at this point, point. Uh, there's still a lot of football left, will be between one of these three running backs, Barkley, Love, or Josh Adams uh what's interesting is you know Barkley's the biggest back he's a 230 pound guy he's the most versatile I mean we saw that with him he ran a kickoff back in Columbus for a touchdown he's thrown for passes he's caught them you know he's a much more well-rounded back he's also a really good blocker than those other two guys you were a stats guy I want to throw out these numbers just just for context of the all three of them who would you guess has faced the highest the best run defenses and who would you get face guess has faced the worst
1: I'm assuming Love has faced the worst.
2: He has. Their average is seventieth. And I'm
1: going to say, guess that Adams has played the best.
2: No, I would have guessed that too. I would be wrong. Also, <laughs> Adams is fifty seventh, whereas Barkley's would
1: be forty first. So for I'm going to read to kind of a shocking stat to you, but I saw this play out. Obviously, I mean the the main reason they didn't couldn't finish the job. Against Ohio State is they can't run the ball and bleed out the clock. Which here we are talking about Saquon Barkley as the Heisman front runner. Penn State's offensive line is just not good, not very good. And uh, would you believe that Penn State ranks 65th in the country in rushing offense? 65th. No. With Saquon I mean, Barkley as its running back, Penn State I'm, 47th. Even if I change that metric to yards per carry, they're not a good running team, but they have the best running back in the country. It's the strangest dichotomy.
2: Well, I mean, I think it goes to goes also on the offensive line, though. I mean, they're they're still you know dealing with some of that issue of you know replenishing their numbers and the guys up front. In the last couple of weeks, I mean, look, Ohio State's a top ten run defense. Michigan's a top ten run defense. They had to scheme some stuff against Michigan coming off a bye week to get him going in the run game. Even your alma mater is seventeenth against the run. You know, they have to do a lot of stuff, and I think again. Uh, we're talking about a, a guy who makes a ton of big plays beyond just taking handoffs. I mean, I think, you know, we saw that, in, you know, at the start of the game where he broke, broke a long kick return. We've seen him, you know, he's way better out of the backfield than any of these other guys is, too. So I think that's the reason why, to me, he's still the front runner, even after, you know, so many negative plays last week when they couldn't close out in Columbus.
1: You know, i got to say, I'm even more impressed coming out of that game with Joe Moorhead, Penn State's offensive coordinator, than I was before because he is doing everything in his power to compensate for the fact that they do not have the advantage in the trenches. They are not an over uh, overpowering offensive line. And just in general, you know, I was down on the field before the game mostly to say hi to our guys at Fox, my guys who I haven't seen in a while. Rob, Leinert, Wanstead, Joel, by the way that you want, want take a guess how that interaction went
2: uh, I think they were delighted to see you. the way you started to say that I was like about to say when you said we start rattling I said Joel I about to, you were about to say like wow Joel's gained 20 pounds
1: no actually Joel is, a, is as trim as I've ever seen him I think uh, you know he had to he had to there was a funny uh, screenshot going around during the game of Gu- Gus and him it was cold in Columbus but I wouldn't say it was like you know I've, I've been in much colder Gus is where it looks like he's, like, sledding in Antarctica. Like, he is, he is, he is, Gus like. Lives in New, and he lives in New York. Yeah, he is wearing his his absolute most warm weather clothes, or cold weather clothes. And Joel's just in a suit, no problem. <laughs> Which he was when I saw him before the game. No, that sees me, you know, the other guys see me, hey, oh my gosh, it's been so long. that it's like, Stewie, hey, hey, you got the pit score? What, what's the pit score? <laughs> some, some things never change.
2: Uh, at, least, at least they didn't ask you about the uh, about the FIU score or something. I think that was another his other favorite team for a while.
1: Yeah, he was always checking in on them. Uh, he was always checking in on his guy, Paul Rhodes. Anyway, you see these teams up close, as you do every week. You get to eyeball them up close. Penn State was not going to win the eyeball test against Ohio State. You know, they're not a big team. And in particular, Trace McSorley is not a large individual. I, mean, I can't believe they list him at six one. So, yeah, yeah.
2: But, He's, but, he is, I mean, I've seen, you know, stood eye to eye with both he and Baker Mayfield. Baker's like 20 pounds heavier. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, Trace McSorley's about the same size as me right now.
1: So all this is a long way of saying that despite all of that, you know, they were very, very close to being 8-0 the other day. And obviously along a long winning streak going back to last season. And I think you got to give a lot of credit to Moorhead for for scheming them in a way to to make the most out of that. And you see that with the way they get Barkley the ball, even though he can't always run between the tackles, but they find ways to throw it to him out of the backfield and get him, flex him out. He, he tried the wildcat thing again the other day, but he ended up handing it to McSorley and that didn't go anywhere. And then of course, you know, McSorley is always rolling out and he he was actually very effective as a runner against Ohio state. So I don't think Penn state's going to get into the playoff at this point, even if they went out, but but we'll see. Maybe they could. You know, you don't know if, if there's a lot of carnage around the rest of the country. An eleven and one team with a with a one point loss at Ohio State might have a shot. You're going to see Penn State this week.
2: I'm excited. Yeah, we got them in East Lansing. Uh, it's a noon Eastern kickoff against Michigan State. I think it's like number seven against number twenty four. And excited to see that offense in person on the road. See how they respond because obviously this is the third leg of a a really rough three game stretch. They coasted through the first one against Michigan and then. You know, see how they handled the emotional down of of that wild game the other day. Uh, just to, to kind of put a button on it, you know, I, I don't – they're going to need somebody to knock off Ohio State, and it can't be, you know, it can't be Wisconsin doing it because they're not going to go ahead of Wisconsin. I mean, they need help from Michigan State or Michigan.
1: But even if somebody knocks off Ohio State – you know they've already lost that tiebreaker. They're not going to get to play for the.
2: But remember, this is a lot like what happened last year. It is to the, the exact. same. Yeah, where they had a bad loss. You know, wasn't even close, and they beat they beat uh, Ohio State. There was a block. It was a home game, a block kick, and you know we'll see we'll see if it uh, you know if it's more favorable. Obviously, there are going to be other surroundings that could, could make, it,
1: make well, it more challenging. The biggest difference is Ohio State had that Oklahoma win. Last year on its resume. So when it got to the end of the year and they were 11 and 1, they could say, well, we're 11 and 1. We've beaten, we're not playing for the Big Ten title, but we've beaten three top 10 teams and our loss was to a fourth. You know, I don't, Penn State's not going to have that kind of resume uh, in part because Michigan's not, I mean, I think Michigan will get back into the rankings, but they're not going to be that high. So, you know, Michigan State, if they beat Michigan State this week, they knocked Michigan State out of the rankings. So I just, you know, it's not going to be the world's greatest 11-1 resume, but I don't think anybody can deny they're a good team.
2: No, you're right. And I think that's, you know, they're going to need some help. They're going to need somebody to knock Notre Dame out of the picture, you know, knock them off. I think they would, look, I think the Pac-12 to me is a stretch if they're going to have a team in there. I mean, I, I think they have a, you know, they would have an argument against the Pac-12 given how much it struggled, but... You know they would need some more. Uh, they need somebody else to knock Georgia out of the place, even if Georgia goes. You know, so they don't have one loss; they have two.
1: So we wrap up Tuesday night. The playoff rankings come out. Can't imagine a lot of people are going to be actually watching that show since it's trick or treat night. In fact, I'm, I'm hoping I can, since we're on Pacific time, that I can get my column filed in time to take my daughter around. Uh, I know you want to take your kids trick or treating. Why do they have to do this on Halloween? Yeah.
2: By the way, isn't it going to be uh, up against the World Series in Game 6?
1: That, too. You're right. So And this has been a great World Series. So. But the first one, although it's completely meaningless, and we know that, it's always interesting to see where the committee differs the most from the AP and coaches' polls. And I, I do think Notre Dame will be higher. I think they will be, at worst, fourth, but prob- possibly third. Um, I think you know, Wisconsin and Miami fans aren't going to be thrilled that their undefeated teams are behind a bunch of one-loss teams, but that's just the reality of their... I don't know, what, else, what do you think could be... What will everybody be ticked off about on Tuesday night?
2: You know, there's always... There is some kind of curveball in there. Um, Last Notre- year it was AM. If Notre Dame's not three... You know, I, again, I always feel like it's like, don't worry about it, because you can... Tr- you know, anybody who's in a good position to be pissed off is probably in a position that they control their own c- control destiny. Um, and I think in that case, I think uh, you know Notre Dame certainly does and I think Wisconsin does I mean you know Wisconsin could only have one top 25 win it would be you know if they beat Ohio State but I don't see anybody you know getting snubbed for a 13-0 Big Ten champ do you
1: 13-0 absolutely not 13-0 13-0 Power 5 champ you're getting in yeah I would agree uh, okay we almost forgot our shout outs
2: All right, you go first, Stu, because I did forget.
1: (laughs) I love that. I love that we came up with a regular segment that neither of us can remember to do. I'm gonna give my shout out to the Houston Cougars. Are you fucking kidding me?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I was gonna do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you told me to go first, so I get to go first, and I'm giving I Stuart Mandel give my shout out to the Houston Cougars. Everybody forgot about them. They are off to a four and three start. They go and end the nation's longest winning streak by beating USF in dramatic fashion, no less, 28-24. Obviously, UCF is now the prohibitive favorite in the American, but shout out to Houston for reminding us that they're good for one of those top 25 wins every year.
2: All right. I am going to give a shout out to a first-year head coach in Conference USA. He's a very famous guy. People know all about him, and it's not Lane Kiffin. It's actually, the other guy down in South Florida, Butch Davis. They are five and two. Uh, they just beat Marshall at Marshall, and Marshall was six and one. They beat 41 forty-one thirty. Everyone's talking about Lane, and it's in, you know it's very interesting and entertaining what's going on with Lane blowing up the scoreboard and putting up all these points. But quietly, Butch Davis has done a heck of a job at a place that had you know I think they had, hadn't won more than five games since like. 2011 so really good job by him and that staff so shout out to butch davis and the fiu panthers
1: that's a good one just off the top of your head like prior to butch davis getting there if i were to mention fiu football what's the first thing that comes to mind
2: well i mean i, I visited there a bunch when when Cristobal was the head coach so i have a, you know a decent amount of knowledge of the place
1: the first to, to this day and i shouldn't shouldn't be this way but like, the, I think the most memorable moment in FIU football history was the brawl with Miami. I think that's what man, many people's only thing they ever saw of FIU. But yeah, I mean, one of my I, my first thought
2: was I visited there and I couldn't believe how bad the facilities were when he first got there. You know, Don Strock had been the coach before him. They weren't even trying to run it like a real real college program. So I, you know, I was pretty dialed into that.
1: But I will say, and I want to just totally be negative here. FIU gave us T.Y. Hilton, and we will always be thankful for that.
2: There you go. Way to, way to button it up on a nice happy note still.
1: All right. Roll the closing credits. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to The All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at BruceFeldmanCFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel, And subscribe to The All-American, if you haven't done so already, at TheAthletic.com slash All-American. So
0: come on, get over
3: here.
1: go back